Welcome to the Analytical Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Yang. I wanted to create a podcast that explored how people use their right brain and left brain. Too often, we are defined by our jobs as analytical or creative. However, when I look around, I see that I'm surrounded by people who blend these two aspects of themselves to create meaningful lives. On this podcast, I will be interviewing people who use their right brain and left brain in fun ways, and I will also be sharing tools to help you develop both. Join me as we explore how to use our analytical and creative sides to bring more dimension to our lives. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. I am so excited to bring you this conversation with my longtime friend, Joy Huang. We start with Joy's love of chemistry in the lab, but then follow her explorations that take her to living abroad in Taiwan, a stint as a talent scout before settling back into a field closer to her scientific roots. As a creative passion, she has built a culinary following from her blog, The Cooking of Joy, and her renowned Instagram account, at Joyosity, where she posts sunny pictures of her creations. This all started with her wanting to make a cookbook of her mom's Taiwanese recipes as a gift, but has led her to being featured on John Krasinski's Some Good News, the food website Bon Appetit, and the Boston Globe. Food, culture, and racism also come up in our conversation. We recorded this episode prior to the increase in news reports of attacks against Asian American Pacific Islanders. We are greatly grieved by these events and continue to advocate for our community. Joy shows that food as a creative and analytical process is one way to continue cultural dialogue and social advocacy. Stay tuned to hear our wide-ranging conversation. You don't want to miss it. Hi, Joy. Thanks so much for joining me today and just for time to explore the concepts of both um, having an analytical side as well as creative side to your life. Hi, Ellen. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) For some background, we've really known each other our entire lives and I look to you as a really dear friend. I think you're more a family because our families are very integrated as well. You're a very special person to me, and I'm just really excited to talk to you more about these different aspects of your life. I definitely feel the same way. So in your own words, can you describe your career path and trajectory and maybe like key milestones in your life? And you can take it as far back as you want. Sure. I guess in undergrad, I majored in chemistry. And then because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. (laughs) After that, I naturally went on to grad school and continued in chemistry. I was on a PhD track, but after two years of that, I realized definitely was not made to continue down that path. It was just, you know, very intense and kind of lonely and just not my cup of tea. So I left grad school after two years with a master's and still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so I bounced around for a couple of years there. I went to Taiwan to teach English with OMF partners. I came back to Jersey and did some gigs. Like I was a model scout for a couple of months and that was super fun. But that also taught me that I don't like being a salesperson. It didn't feel right in my gut to use my superpowers to convince people to buy things. So I temped for a chemical company and eventually moved up to Boston. Still wasn't sure what I was doing with my life. (laughs) But then eventually I, through a friend, 
she posted something about how they were looking for a coordinator in clinical research at our company. I didn't know anything about clinical research, but it seemed like a good fit for me because it needed someone with a science background, but also included interacting with people, which I think that's the thing I really missed the most when I was in grad school, like doing all that research in the lab, but just not having people to people interaction was just something I found lacking in that lifestyle. So I kind of started on the ground floor in clinical research as a coordinator. And then after a couple of years became the technical term is clinical research associate, but people also call them monitors. And it's something I'm still doing now. Basically, we monitor the clinical trials that our companies are running, which involves traveling to the different hospitals or physicians' offices to look at medical records of patients in our trials and comparing them to what's been entered into our database. So there's a lot of you know numbers involved there. But the part I really enjoy about that is that we get to travel. So I like that every day is different. I enjoy the non-monotony of it. That's so great. Thank you for sharing that. And I just wanted to go back and just explore your science and chemistry background a little bit. So for me, the sciences have been challenging, but I wanted to better understand how, how was it for you and in your graduate studies, was it more that it was being in a lab versus the subject matter that was maybe why you didn't choose to continue those studies? Hmm, That's a good question. I found some parts of chemistry a lot easier than the others, like orgo or ochem was really hard for me because it was just about memorization and then putting the different building blocks together. But then like pchem, physical chemistry was super easy because that was, you know, once you knew the basics, the foundations, you could extrapolate all the different formulas that you needed. Oh, and I really loved the laboratory aspect. I loved being in the lab and just making chemical reactions happen and creating new things was was really awesome. So I guess it was something I didn't have a passion for, though. And I feel like if you're going to get a PhD in anything, you really need to be passionate about it because it kind of sucks your life and (laughs) you need to be able to have the motivation to allow that. So I, it was just something I was doing because I guess my parents, my dad is a chemist and it just seemed kind of safe growing up. You know, I guess, yeah, I was always taught like you better have some, a safe, secure job or way to uh, have security in your life. And if you wanted to do anything artsy, that's fine if you keep it as a hobby, but you shouldn't make that your life. Yeah, no, I that completely resonates with me. And I think that I had gotten those messages too. And that also affected my career path. So so definitely I can relate to that. But at the essence, you know, I do fear that you've had some type of love for parts of the sciences and you bring back the difference between organic chemistry and physical chemistry. And the, that seems to be such a long ago memory for me. But you know, I love just being reminded of that. And, you know, one thing, Joy, that I've always respected and admired about you is that you really did try to find your way. And by exploring different options and by getting out of your comfort zone, 
And so that's something that I've had really tremendous respect for you. Part of the journey of finding who you are and landing where you are in your life and career. So that's something I wanted to also bring up. It's funny that you say that because I I don't feel like that's what I was doing, (laughs) but um, I could see how from the outside, it could seem that way just because I was doing all these random different things. Yeah, I don't, I, along the way, I don't feel like I was purposely trying to find my calling or anything. It was just, well, I need to do something. So why don't I just do this? Because it seemed interesting or fun. And I think what I always liked about you too, is that doing something that you liked was important and you were okay changing that when you realize that about yourself. Is that Mm -hmm. right? You know, I think so. Yeah. I'm definitely kind of a hedonist, (laughs) not in like the extreme way, but just being happy is important to me. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really great reminder. And sometimes it may seem indulgent to prioritize your happiness or try to orient your life to happiness. But I, I definitely see that in how you live your life. And I think that that is a great model, I would say, uh, and something that I'm trying to do more in my life. Yeah, it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> then switching gears, you had this amazing, I would say, creative outlet that you know I would love to explore more as part of your life. Joy has this Instagram account and she can be found at Joyosity. And there she has really spent many years which started as a cooking blog and then now has really grown from that. So can you talk about how you actually started that journey and maybe that origin story of how it happened? Sure. I just posted about this recently too, because it was my mom's birthday. So I think that's what you're alluding to, but it's probably about a dozen years ago. I wanted to do something special for my mom for her birthday. So yeah, it must've been that long ago. So she's always been a great cook in my life, but she's one of those moms that never really uses recipes. So it's really hard to learn how to cook like that. I guess maybe because I <laughs> I have that analytical part of me. So I prefer using recipes and following them rather than just kind of winging it, which is what my mom does every time. But every time it's delicious and consistently delicious. So I think it's just... She has so much experience, but like without that, it's really hard to do. So what my plan was to pretty much document her recipes and then to take some pictures of the dishes I made and then put it together in like a photo book and then give it to her like a cookbook. Her birthday's in mid-January. So when I went home that Thanksgiving and then for Christmas break, I just kept pestering her and pestering her and you know, I told her I was trying to learn how to cook like she did. So I just kept asking, all right, so how many tablespoons is that? How did you measure that? And I got probably maybe a dozen recipes of my favorite recipes of hers. And then I went home and then tried to duplicate them. And it turned out pretty well. I take some pictures and then I put the book together. So I have a hard time keeping things from my mom, but I also really enjoy surprises. My mom hates surprises and I told her, oh, I have a present coming to you. You should expect it in a week or so. And she's like, what is it? What is it? And she wouldn't stop asking me what it was. So I told her she could guess. 
And so she was like, she figured out that it was a book and then she figured out that it was a cookbook. And then she got all offended. <laughs> she's like, what do I need a cookbook for? So, um, but then, you know, she finally got it. And then she called me that when she got it. And then she was, she was crying because she was so touched. And I was like, ha, huh. <laughs> like, I knew you, I told you, you would like the gift. You, why were you so mad at me? <laughs> so, um, and I haven't, I haven't gotten her as good of a gift since. <laughs> That's a hard bar hard to beat. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so basically after all that, I realized, hey, like I have all these pictures that are pretty decent and I have all these recipes of my mom's. I could put these down into a blog and kind of start a food blog. And this is right around the time when some of the other food blogs were really taking off like Smitten Kitchen and mm -hmm. Orange Jet, which I don't think is really around as much anymore. Not I'm as much. Yeah, but Smitten Kitchen's definitely still going strong. So it was kind of like the heyday of food blogs coming up. And so I started it and I used that blog as a way to document and share recipes that I liked. A lot of them started off as my mom's recipes, but I ended up just whatever I ended up cooking, I would, if it was a good dish that I liked, I would record it in the blog. I haven't been as active in the blog because I think after a while, I, I was able to record all the dishes that I frequently make. And there just haven't been as many new ones coming around. And also because I forget how long ago now, maybe seven, eight years ago, I started my Instagram account. And then guess about four-ish years ago, started just putting a lot more time and effort into that because I was seeing a lot more interest in my posts there. So I think about three years ago, I, I gave myself a challenge to post once a day. And I've been able to keep that up pretty much except when I'm traveling. And if anything, I am now trying to <laughs> detach myself from that because I feel like I've gotten into a pretty good groove and it's okay if I miss a day here or there. Yeah, I feel like I've probably only missed like maybe three days a year. So you're really meaning actually post seven days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Wow, yeah. that's really impressive. I wanted to go back a little bit about your blog originally. I love your blog and I still refer to it a lot. Did you enjoy actually writing the recipes and stories or things like that? I mean, did you enjoy that? Yeah. I mean, I feel like as with any work of art, which is kind of weird to reference it that way, but you know, you're pouring yourself into it. So even just, yeah, recording the recipes, but also writing out like a little blurb before each recipe, it would take some effort and time, but I did it because I enjoyed doing it. If I didn't, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> and I think that's where we differ because for me, I think capturing it down and all the technical part and feeling that, you know, it needs to be reproducible. I think to me, that's a little bit more stressful. And so you know, as much as I, I love cooking, I, I think that was too much of an ask for me. But I love your your website is really beautiful. And, and I love the stories and humor. And I think a couple of them that I have always remembered are your unicorn poop cookies, <laughs> and also your Game of Thrones baked goods. And so I just love the humor that you also were able to put into that. <laughs> Thanks. Ideas hard to find? Or how did you come up with the inspiration? 
Uh, I'm pretty sure the unicorn poop cookies I saw on another blog or Pinterest or something. And I was like, okay, that looks so fun. And I just need to recreate it. That's where that was from. The Game of Thrones, I think I just kind of came up naturally because I was a huge fan of the show at the time. Yeah, one of the things I made that got a lot of interest was uh, one of the later seasons, they showed the grayscale disease and it was pretty disgusting but it looked I knew it looked just like the top of like a cream puff when you add the oh I can't remember what the French name is right now but you add this layer on top that crackles after you bake it and it looks it just looks exactly the same and I yeah so I recreated it to make it look like the grace uh the grayscale and I called it a grayscale scale cream puff and then after i posted it about it it got picked up on like a couple different websites because it was <laughs> it's kind of gross because i i dug into it and there was like the cream came out just like the puss yeah i love i love cream puffs i love custard fillings um yeah. but i just thought that was even for someone i I never really follow Game of Thrones, but I recognize just the creativity um, of the idea. And so did you have any other, you know, favorites or favorite recipes or stories behind them at all? You know, I, I can't think of one right now. I'm sure I, I, I have some and it will come up as soon as we finish. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's totally okay. But speaking of your blog, you know, it's one that I still reference a lot for, and especially your tomatoes and egg recipe. I, yeah. I still, it's such a, it's such a comfort food for me um, and something that people in our culture really are familiar with, but it's just so nice to have it all written down and to be like, oh yeah, there's sesame oil or, you know, this ingredient. And so I always, I still reference it to this day. And then it's so funny because last night I was just thinking, oh, I actually go to Joy's Inspirations a lot. And so last night I made your idea of the uh, roasted broccoli and tofu with a sesame miso dressing that I'd seen you post about in a cooking club on Facebook that we're both a part of. So I did that. And then I'm going to be hosting a cooking demo for um, how to make dumplings. And then so I plan on actually sending out links to your dumpling recipes too. So um, I was just thinking about how much I utilize your content really. Oh, that makes me really happy. I just made the tomato and eggs, uh, I think two days ago, because yeah, it's just such an easy comfort food. I thought of a story for you. Oh, yes. <laughs> what is what is it? Okay. So recently I've been making these five stranded round halas. And that came about because for Christmas, I had made this wreath hala and I posted it on Instagram. And then someone commented and was like, does it make you feel uncomfortable that you're using a traditional Jewish recipe to celebrate a different religion? And I was like, <laughs> whoa, I had not thought about that at all. Like hala to me is just really yummy bread that's really fun to shape and very photogenic. But I feel like she had a good point. If it's something I would feel really strongly about, and I saw someone else using it for a completely different reason, I would, you know, I would question it as well. But strangely enough, I think being a Taiwanese American transplant, I feel like I don't have any strong traditions either way that 
I was trying to think of an example in my own life, but I couldn't think of one. So the reason I thought up the five-stranded round hollows was because I was like, well, I don't want to step on anyone's foot. There was a beautiful six-stranded round hollow that I had seen that when you make it, it looks like you see the um, Star of David. And I was like, well, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna stay away from that. Mm-hmm. And then I haven't ever seen anyone do a five-stranded. And then so I was just, I just tried it and it, it came out really beautifully. And then a lot of people have been trying it as well. And I've been asking, you know, is this something that I didn't make this up, but I guess probably one of the first people to ever post about it or, you know, put it somewhere on the internet to be searchable because I definitely tried searching for it myself and I didn't find anything. So yeah, that was, I guess that's just a story of how someone questioning me made me think, oh, well this, you know, like thinking outside of the box and figuring out a new way to do something with something old. Yeah, no, that's a great story. And I I love how you're actually listening to people's questions and how that inspires you in different direction. And I had never known that five strand hala was not a thing. And so I'm going to go back and take a look um, at those more closely. But you know, I think this is a really great time to transition to more of your recent work and how your cooking or what you post has evolved. And you know, I know that you've been very focused or interested in bread. And that seems to be a common theme. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and how that has evolved? Sure. Yeah, I started making sourdough bread almost exactly like two years ago, I think, because I had seen someone else or a couple people post some really beautiful pictures of sourdough that had been scored with a wheat stalk pattern. And it just seemed like calligraphy, but on bread. I wanted to figure out how to do it myself. So I just started making a lot and a lot of sourdough. But since I live by myself, I can't eat all that sourdough. And (laughs) I don't know if this is a secret, but I don't say this much. I don't especially like bread or sourdough. (laughs) I don't like eating it that much. I just like making it. Anyway, I was trying to think of a way to justify making so much bread. And then I realized, oh, hey, I could make it once a week and bring it to church. And then they could use it as the communion bread. So I asked if that was an option. They said, sure. So that was cool because it kind of gave me a rhythm The bread I make takes 24 hours to make. So usually what I would do be like Friday night, I would feed my starter and then Saturday morning, I would feed it again. And then Saturday afternoon, build up the bread, the dough, and then shape it, let it rest in the fridge overnight and then bake it Sunday morning. And then, yeah, I got to experiment with scoring it with a lot of different patterns. And it's kind of like being an artist and bread is your medium. Mm -hmm. And it was just really fun and pretty photogenic. And I feel like people were resonating with that. Like, I think that kind of goes back to when I had talked about being in the lab and then making something out of nothing or like changing something from one aspect to another. With sourdough, like you're just starting off with regular flour, water, and salt. And then the starter, which is also just flour and and water and a natural yeast. And then you're baking this edible, beautiful creation that comes out of it. It's really cool. I guess, yeah, I do gravitate towards photogenic foods. So um, I discovered this challah that 
worked really well for me from Joanne Chang's Pastry Love cookbook. And I adapted it to use my sourdough starter in some of it. And I found I was really getting the hang of being able to make the different strands and all the different braiding and weaving patterns. I think being able to figure out the patterns and even creating new ones I think part of that probably does go back to being more analytical and being able to see patterns and figuring out how they work. So in terms of cooking, are you more of a precise cook or are you very technical in how you cook? Well, especially for baking, I use a I use a scale and everything because it's just easier to get, you know, to be precise and get reproducible results. So yeah, for baking and bread and everything, I definitely use a scale and weigh everything down to the grams. For cooking, I could be a bit more willy-nilly, but I usually do follow recipes, except the tomato and egg recipe. That one, I never check my recipe about quantities. I always eyeball it. I think, yeah, I've just made that one so many times. I feel comfortable doing that. So I guess I have achieved my mom's level. (laughs) (laughs) You've arrived. But um, yeah, for like new recipes, I definitely, you know, will follow them at least the first couple times. I, I do that too. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, where you are with your pictures and your cooking, I've always appreciated your artistic ability and in your pictures and everything. Is there a place where that comes from or does that come naturally for you? In high school, I I took the photography class, and this is before digital cameras were a commercial thing. (laughs) So I was using a real SLR camera, not a DSLR, like a real SLR with film and everything. And we would develop the black and white film in the dark room. And I guess that's a pretty lost art now. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone even does that anymore. But having to learn, like composition, I think is the biggest thing I took away from that class. But also the fact that, you know, since it's not digital, every picture you take actually counts and you can't see it until you develop it, which I mean, you know, nowadays with cameras being on our phone and actually I don't even own a DSLR right now. I just use my phone for everything because the cameras are that great. I take a million pictures of every little thing. And then just pick one that I like, whereas you definitely couldn't really do that before. So I think that, you know, kind of taught me to just really try to capture what you're looking for in just a few tries. Yeah, I think one thing that I've always appreciated about you is that people really like your photos and they ask you what camera you have or like, what is your setup? What your experience shows is that it's really not about how expensive your camera is or your equipment or your lighting, because I think you have a pretty minimalistic approach. Yeah, in terms of aesthetics, like I know there's a very popular aesthetic on Instagram and probably Pinterest of where you show the food that you made, but also have bits and pieces of the ingredients that you use. And it's very popular and I could see why it's very beautiful. But I'm going to say the Asian-ness in me, um, but just so it, like, it just seems like such a waste to have all these things that you have to hold on to, to just put in a picture. Whereas, you know, I'm like, well, I would rather use all those things into making it and then I'm, I won't have it left to put in a picture. I don't know if I'm explaining myself correctly. Yeah, um, no, it's editing, right? Keeping it to what you think is important, really. Yeah, but also just not wasting ingredients. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, yeah. (laughs) I can see that too. 
Yeah, I guess because I'm just using an iPhone, it, it's also easier to just get close to what you're making. And yeah, if your dish is good enough on its own not to need all these other props with it, yeah, I guess that's what I my goal is, to have a dish that doesn't need props in order to be photogenic. I make tons of things that don't make it onto Instagram, but are still yummy. They're just not <laughs> postable. <laughs> right, right, right. I also know that, you know, your Instagram account has social causes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess this kind of goes back to, was it the end of May last year when George Floyd was killed? And then, yeah, a lot of Instagram turned out to be more socially justice oriented. Even most of the food blogs, food accounts that I follow. And then one day I got a direct message from someone. I don't even remember who it was. And I don't know. This person had never contacted me before. I assumed they were a follower. Just saying, you know, she was kind of disappointed that I had spoken out about what was going on in our country in terms of all the police brutality and then the injustices against Black people. And it was kind of like a wake-up call for me because in my own head, I guess my Instagram was really just for fun. That's literally on my profile page that it's just for fun. But I guess my account had grown to the point where there were a lot of people following me that don't know me personally. Well, yeah, <laughs> at this, there's definitely like thousands of people who don't know me personally and wouldn't know that, yeah, these are things I care about. But before that was just posting pictures of food. It seemed really weird to pivot and say anything that wasn't about food, but I was seeing other accounts doing that and thinking, oh, that's so awesome for them. I'm so happy. It just it made me feel good to see people I respected speaking out. And then I guess this person's DM just made me realize like, hey, I guess I guess I have a voice and people would listen to it as well. Also made me realize, you know, I shouldn't be afraid of saying something if I if it's important, because it's my account, I should speak up and say the things I feel about what's going on right now. So I would not say that my account has turned into a social justice warrior account or anything like that. But it did make me feel brave enough to talk about some of the injustices I was seeing, not just like the BLM movements, but also like what was going on in China with the Uyghurs and Recently, I have been advocating for one of my friend's nonprofit organizations that is helping the refugee women and children on the Mexican side of the U.S. border since they just don't have any resources over there. So I've been making bread for people and then asking them to donate to that cause. But yeah, just in general, I feel like this past year... I've started owning the fact that I have influence through my Instagram account, even though I really, really dislike the term influencer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I think for me, what was really inspiring seeing that time of your life and, and what you were posting was particularly how you were using this creative outlet to really fundraise against racism. I saw that you had some events around that, how you were baking to fundraise for, you know, other social causes. And so I just really liked how you were integrating 
these different aspects of your life and showing what is possible. So that was something that really resonated with me as someone who's following your account as well. I know you also got some publicity around some work that you were doing to support our frontline healthcare workers. Can you talk (laughs) about that? Sure. Yeah, that was a really fun thing that happened early last year. My church had set up this program, like a community assistance program where people could request help for different things. And then you could also sign up to be a volunteer to fulfill any of those needs. So I signed up and there are different requests like, oh, we need people to deliver food to this group of people. We need help moving this or that. And I saw one that came through. It was, we need someone to make several hundred chocolate chip cookies for the frontline workers at a local hospital. And I was like, oh my gosh, it was like, I was made for this because (laughs) the last like dozen years, I have literally been making thousands of cookies for our Christmas concerts each year. And this was kind of different because usually I would have a whole team of people and there'd be several days of us doing that. But because of the pandemic, the request was for one person or one household to be able to do this, you know, so that there wouldn't be any contamination with people. But I knew I could knock out a, you know, a couple hundred using my church's commercial kitchen in a couple hours. So I, I volunteered. I, I was able to do it twice. And then the second time I did it, I thought it would be fun to set up like a time-lapse video. I just thought it'd be fun to share, like scooping out all those cookies and baking them and whatever. So I set that up and then I posted about it. And this is right around the time that John Krasinski was starting his Some Good News show on YouTube. And just for fun, I, I kind of sent it into them because they were, you know, asking for different ways that pieces of good news, different ways people were helping each other. And then I think a week or two later, I got contacted by someone from their team, you know, asking for some more details and information and if they could use it. And I was like, uh, yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) So they didn't really say, oh, well, expect to see it this week or whatever. But yeah, so I was just watching each week, like just wondering, oh, am I going to show up? And then there was this one particular episode, I think it was episode five, where it said it was called like the potluck. And it started off like talking about food. And I was like, I think this is going to be it. <laughs> and then <laughs> they showed the time lapse video. And then I got to hear John Krasinski like pronouncing my name. And then he pronounced it correctly, which is so cool. <laughs> So that was definitely very, very thrilling. But you know, what was also interesting was that got written up in a couple of local newspapers. And I didn't even know about it because I think John had mentioned I was a Boston native. So the Boston Globe and one or two other local newspapers wrote about it, never contacted me about it. My friends had to be like, oh, I saw your name in the newspapers. What? But I think it was the Boston Globe. They described me as like an everyday American. And Ellen, it was so weird hearing that because I've always identified as, you know, like Taiwanese American or Asian American, but it was just really weird to hear a mainstream newspaper calling me an everyday American because I was like, wow, it is what I am, but I've always felt, you know, slightly foreign in America. And especially that time of the year last year when there was a lot more prejudice against Asians. It was just such a simple phrase, but it was like, wow, that's cool that I could be described that way. Yeah. Wow. That's that's really powerful. And thank you so much for sharing. I think 
it definitely does have impact. I think when you actually see it in print too, from an established media outlet, newspaper, and and so that definitely sounds like a very powerful experience. So thanks for sharing that. And really just for this whole journey of how you've basically been able to find an intersection between cooking and baking and social causes. I'm curious, you know, knowing that you have both of these parts to you, you know, you have your analytical scientific background, and it's still a part of your daily life, as well as this really engaging creative outlet. Do you think they play off of each other for you at all? Do you identify with one more than the other? Yeah, I guess it just depends what time of the day it is. You know, when I'm at work, I would say I would identify more with the analytical side and then off work, especially when I'm doing anything from my Instagram with the more creative side. But I can definitely see them, the two sides helping each other out. And I feel like they're just so well integrated into my into me that, you know, I don't always think, oh, well, I guess they're just very well integrated. Like with cooking, it's easy to, like I mentioned before, like see the patterns when I'm braiding or weaving bread or being able to scale up or down a recipe. It just makes a lot of sense to me. And then I think being more creative while at work is definitely more, is very helpful with problem solving, especially when there are just new problems that come up. Like, I mean, this was a long time ago, but when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, we had a patient that was being treated I want to say it was Tulane University. And then because the the place that she was going to was flooded, we had to move her to another facility. And it was just crazy because I was pretty low on the ladder back then. But just being able to try to figure out, well, how can we safely get her to a place where she can continue to be treated was something I had to figure out to do because my managers were on, on vacation, I think. <laughs> so I was in the room while this was happening. And I feel like being able to just think outside of the box was very helpful in that case. Wow, that's that's amazing. I love that story. And I and I agree. I think from my personal experience, having access to creativity really, you know, it crosses the lines and it's not separate. It's like when I'm creative in one area, I think it really helps me think outside of the box in more structured environments like at work. So I definitely Mm -hmm. hear you on that. Joy, thank you so much for your time and just sharing your life experiences and all the interesting things that have happened in your life. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me to come on. Wasn't Joy's story so inspiring? Some of my key takeaways from our conversation are one, Do what brings you joy and happiness in your life and fill your life with that. It's okay if you don't know what it is, but keep searching for that. Two, even when it's hard, be open to challenging questions that can convict you to learn more about yourself and grow. And three, combining your analytical and creative sides can really help you with problem solving. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review. I have more great interviews of analytical creatives that I will be releasing on a weekly basis. If you have a topic that you would like me to talk about, you can email me at theanalyticalcreativepodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, I wanted to give credit to singer-songwriter Tiana V for creating my fun and upbeat podcast theme. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram at Tiana V Music.